0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to read uh, a prayer from the Valley of Vision, Puritan prayers here, Christ alone. But pray with me as I, as I would read this. O oh God, thy main plan and the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven, where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last in this world Thou hast given me a beginning. One day it will be perfected in the realm above. Thou hast helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, possess him, love him, bless him in my heart, mouth, and life. Let me study and stand for discipline in all the ways of worship. Out of the love for Christ and to show my thankfulness, to seek and know his will from love, to hold it in love, and daily to care for and keep this state of heart. Thou hast led me to place all my nature and happiness and oneness with Christ in having heart and mind centered only on him and being like him in communicating good to others. This is my heaven on earth, but I need the force, energy, impulses of thy spirit to carry me on the way to my Jerusalem. Here it is my duty to be as Christ in this world, to do what he would do, to live as he would live, to walk in love and meekness then would he be known, then would I have peace and death. Father, we do pray that this morning we might reflect well the image of God upon our lives as we bear that image. Father, I would ask that as we would study this topic of idolatry through Acts 17, we might see in our own hearts, you might reveal to us where we would be prone to idolatrous ways, where we might have set up that which is taking place of you, Father, I pray that this morning our hearts might be inclined to hear Your Word and apply it. May Your name be praised in Jesus' precious name. We pray, Amen. Acts seventeen. This is a a well-known passage, particularly twenty-two through through thirty-four, as this is Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And interestingly enough, yesterday. A bunch of our congregation stood on Mars Hill and quoted this passage. I know at least the Clarks and the Beckers and the Cones were up there. Um, And you'll see a picture here in just a minute that Luke sent me yesterday. And it goes well with the topic uh, I was going to preach on. I was going to preach on idolatry. And then I'm seeing these images they were sending me. And as I was studying this passage, it's becoming very very clear that this is the passage to study on. So I'm going to read it through. And I want to give you some historical context And show you some pictures so children to be able to see where Paul was, actually was when he preached this. And you'll understand the significance of why he preached this particular method, this particular message. So Acts 17, we're going to begin in verse 16. And Paul, you see at verse 15, had just come to Athens, Greece, and was was waiting there for Silas and Timothy to come to him. And then this is where we pick up in verse 16. Follow along with me. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. If you have a King James, that would say that the city was full of idolatry. I think that would probably be a better depiction of what was actually going on there. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange thing to our ears. And the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring being in God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Chris, let's see. Can you can I put this on screen? There we go. This is a picture Luke sent me. <clears throat> this is the Acropolis. We are. Th- this rock right here is the Areopagus, or would be known as Mars Hill. And you're looking across this, this valley, this little gulch here, over to the Acropolis. And this was the backdrop of Paul's message. This is what he had behind him. Let me flip to it and flip to another picture. Most famous building probably, and the Acropolis is Parthenon, here in Athens, Greece. Now, it's being restored, so it looks somewhat different than this now. Who knows why it looks like this? Huh? Well, it's ruined, but why was it particularly l- looking like this? Yeah, it got bombed. A bunch of gunpowder was stored there and a cannonball happened to fly into it. You know what happens when cannonball hits gunpowder? Parthenon doesn't exist much more. So it exploded, which is why you have all of this rock down below here, and they're taking it literally small chink, small piece by small piece, and they're attempting to put it all back together. And this building is known as one of the most architecturally diverse um, wonder of the world. People try to imitate this building. And as they're putting it back together, they're finding they can't figure out how in the world that the Grecians did this. Because each pillar uh, appears to be straight, but it's not. It's actually curved. But they knew men's eyes would be able to see straight lines. If you curve things, things right they're actually curved. They're not one piece. They're actually built, but they're so well fit together with no mortar that you can't tell any difference. And because of that structure being so heavy, that's why they had to curve things because a curve holds weight better. So it has has all this amazing architecture to it, and people have tried to um, imitate this. And on the Acropolis, which was this picture I showed you before, was just temple after temple after temple of these different gods that they worshipped because the Athens were known as people who were extremely accepting of any new god. They would conquer something and then they would bring their new god and they would worship that. They all wanted to put as many as possible. So this is very large. Um, The Areopagus or Mars Hill where we're standing is quite large as well. But here is this This Acropolis now the Acropolis it's known as the Acropolis but almost every town in that period of time has an Acropolis has a place that is prominent on its highest hill a citadel a place where all the important things would go so for instance this was known as a citadel so if you were if Athens was being invaded they would go there all the city would go there because of its high point. Its, its significance for uh, def- defending itself, but also because it had the most important things there. They put all their most important possessions on this place, and it became their ruin. Interestingly enough, San Antonio, Texas, the Palladium, seeks to copy this architecture. Interestingly enough, if this is not a sign of the idolatry in America that p- copies the Parthenon. Uh, this is a bigger shot. You can see the Parthenon up here. This is the Acropolis right here. I'm sorry, this is the Acropolis. This is the Areopagus. This is Mars Hill right here. It's an entire round... Chris, what happened? It's an entire uh, round hill. Like if you go to Enchanted Rock, granite, an entire bald granite mountain, this is essentially what it is except the whole thing is marble. And this is where Paul would, would came and preached or was taken and and preached because that hill... And at that time was where they would carry on uh, trials. If you were uh, homicide, if if you had committed murder, they would take you there and try you. And so they took Paul there to try him, not as a trial to condemn him to death for committing some crime, but to try him on his theology because they were people who wanted to know all kinds of different belief systems. And so they took him there, and Paul ends up preaching this famous message. Matthew Henry says this about the Athens. There were more idols in Athens than there were in all Greece asides, uh, all Greece put together and that they had twice as many sacred feasts as others had. Whatever strange gods were recommended to them, they admitted them and allowed them a temple and an altar. Does that sound like America? It does sound like America. We've become a nation that accepts anything and everything and we want to know what you believe and we're going to comply with and we're going to welcome you with open arms rather than standing for a truth so much of where Athens Greece was we are approaching if not already there in many ways let's look at verse um, 18 of Acts 17:18. so this is the backdrop Paul is is preaching here with an entire idolatrous hill behind him and he's beginning to speak on idolatry but some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who are these Epicurean and Stoic philo- philosophers? The Epicureans, Matthew Henry again, thought God altogether, such as one is themselves, an idle inactive being. Not an idol as something to worship, but idol as in wasting time. That minded nothing nor put any difference between good and evil. They would not own either that God made the world or that he governs it know that man needs, not that man needs to make any conscious of what he says or does, having no punishment to fear, nor rewards to hope for all, all which lose atheistical notions Christianity is leveled against. This is the key I want you to get. The Epicureans indulge themselves in all the pleasures of sense and place their happiness in them. And what Christ has taught us in the first place to deny ourselves. So they were The Epicureans were entirely about how can we satisfy the lust of our flesh. Whatever feels good, whether it's food, whether it's sexuality, whatever it is, we're going to do this because this is essentially the God that we worship. The Stoics thought themselves altogether as good as God and indulged themselves as much in the pride of life as the Epicureans did in the lust of the flesh and of the eye. They made their virtuous man to be in no way inferior to God himself, nay, to be superior, quote Matthew Henry. They, were, they didn't see themselves as uh, below God. They saw themselves as equal with God. We're just as good. We have all of this knowledge. What could keep us from being as good as God? We're superior. Now, Paul, he has a burden. Notice, with, notice that in verse 16. His spirit was provoked or his spirit was burdened within him. And then he began this practical execution of this burden. And so for practical application of ourselves, when we have a burden, we, we should be praying for a burden for souls. And if we do have a burden, how do we manifest that burden? Well, the American way is a very brash, uh, arrogant, bold way. And Paul approaches it in a very prudent, um, wise way. He enters into discussion. He enters into a, uh, a dialogue with them. And so instead of just coming out and condemning them straight out, he comes out and asks them a question and draws them out and begins to talk to them about something that they can understand, which is the worship of something. They understand worship. They're worshiping something, and he wants to turn their worship away from idols to the one true God. So he begins with this conversation. Now notice verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him because Paul is just beginning to speak where he is he's in the marketplace and he speaks this would be the same for us do we only speak at church or do we speak wherever god has placed us conversed with him what is this babbler this this word babbler can be trained, translated as a bird that is fit for nothing you wouldn't you wouldn't barbecue this thing and eat it and you wouldn't put it in a cage. It's just worthless. And it just kind of flits about and does this little thing. And they're kind of thinking of Paul. It was just kind of this worthless, idle little fellow. He just kind of says little things. And then he flits over here and says something else. Poor fellow is really the way they were looking at him. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Remember, that would pique their interest. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Paul was ready. He was ready to begin when the Lord would bring about an opportunity to speak. Now, verse 19. Look at verse 19. Here's. Here's. I'm, I'm going to make a few points, and then I want to uh, look at some some marks of idolatry here. I want to look at a, a, a one of the points I'm going to make here is verse 19. Take him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, how would they not known about God? Because here they had all these idols that they're worshiping. And yet they hear some people that did not understand or did not know. And I think in America today, we often think, well, everybody knows about God. Everybody has heard of Jesus Christ. Everybody knows. No, everybody does not know. And you can go today and walk down Main Street or go to your local grocery store or Starbucks or wherever it is and ask somebody, presenting them the gospel and say, have you ever heard of this? And you'll find many who will say, no, no, I've never heard of that. Because we're in a, we're in a day where Christ has been, remember, God has been removed from much of our society for years and years and years. He was removed from school a long time ago. And so there are many people today that have grown up that have never, never heard They know of church. But for all all they know, it's just another religion like Muslim or or the Buddhist type of religion. We've got to be willing to speak and speak boldly. There are many who have not heard. That's the first point I want to make. Bold to speak and live aright. The world is in a dark place in desperate need of light. There are still those who have not heard. And there are many who have not heard. Now, he calls them out, <clears throat> verse 21, continuing with our narrative here. He calls them out in verse 21. Now, all the Athanasians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, I want to, I want to make a side point here down a little rabbit trail. These people were news They just wanted to know. So if they were in today's world, they would have been on Fox News. They would have been on ESPN. They would have been on wherever finding the latest news so just they could go talk about it. And tell other people about what they had heard, because they wanted to find out something new. It was their it was their desire to go to this place and tell and talk about things and hear things that they had not heard or anybody had talked about before. So they wanted to be the, wanted to be the latest with the latest news. and they would just go about telling and hearing something new. If you go over to First Timothy, flip over there with me, first Timothy four, you see the contrast of what we should be as Christians. There's nothing wrong with, and you should, hear other people and tell and talk about the truth. But Paul exhorts Timothy in the very opposite here in 1 Timothy 4 of what he should be doing. Until I come, verse 13 of 1 Timothy 4, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading ...of Scripture to exhortation to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by the prophecy... ...when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Paul's admission to the Christians would be... ...don't just tell and hear, but read and meditate. And we, in 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 the cultural Christianity of today... ...would love to just go to church or just go to a conference... And not have to study and meditate. But a Christian who is seeking God. Is going to go first to the scriptures. He's going to be a good Berean. He's going to study and show himself approved. He's going to meditate on the scriptures. He's not just going to rely upon the hearing of others. And the telling of news. Because there is falsehood. in much of the teaching of today. He's going to go to scripture. And he's going to read and meditate. We're going to come back to this here in a minute when we get to some marks of an idolatrous person. Now, Paul continues. He begins in verse 22 to stand up and preach. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You would see in King James, you are in every way too superstitious. Well, that too is not T-O. It's T-O-O or also superstitious. So there's this very religious thought. They are interested in religious things. He starts with a compliment. He starts with this exhortation of getting into this conversation with them. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. So Paul's taking it from the physical to the spiritual. And we can very easily do that. You walk up to a person. They've got a, a gold cross hanging around their neck. They've got a tattoo on their arm that's a gold cross. That's a cross or something. You can very easily get in a conversation. Hey, that's very interesting. You have a cross. What does that mean to you? Boom, you've just taken it from the physical to the spiritual. This is what Paul is doing. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul's beginning this contrast between an idolatrous person and a person that is worshiping God. The main difference being an idolatrous person is going to form. You see that very uh, later on there in verse 29, the form an image by the art and imagination of man. Instead of a man forming an image to worship, God formed us to worship him. That's the massive difference, right? Normally, if you're going to worship another God, you formed it. The reason we must worship God is because he formed us. And we know according to Genesis 129, we, are, we, we bear his image to worship him. So Paul's beginning this contrast. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Now I have to make a, a comment there because you could easily say, well, then people are just going to find their way to God. You know, just kind of explore and they'll, det- they'll find their way to God. Will that happen? No. No. Every man is, is, is dead in his trespasses and sins. There's no way he can grasp God. We've studied this before. But there's this picture there that we cannot find God. It would be desire. It was his ultimate desire that we would walk with him in close relationship with him. That was before the fall in the Garden of Eden. And then look what has happened now yet he is actually not far from each one of us. There's almost this paradox thought here. of you can, you're gonna ser- People are going to search and try to find their way to God, and yet he's right there, and they'll never actually find him other than through the work of the Holy Spirit, making them alive in Christ. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul was the consummate debater. He was able to bring in the cultural significance of what others were even saying. And here he quotes this poem. Being in God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is, being, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and, and imagination of man. And here we can slip into a, an improper view of thinking about God. I know I can personally slip into this thought of, <clears throat> well, if I just read the Bible and I want to read the Bible and I want to go to church and I want to do the things of God. Those are all thoughts that I have and I have great longings and burdens to do. But those can very quickly and easily slip over into. So that I can get the blessing of God. Rather than the relationship. So, and, and the blessing. Normally is what I want. If you, if you think of the, um, the Lord's prayer. Our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us thy daily bread. Normally I want my daily bread, right? So I'm going to worship God, I'm going to pray the prayers, I'm going to do these things in a heart that desires him, but my heart is so sinfully and deceitfully wicked that it can slip over into so that God will give me my daily bread. But my heart should be, God, I want your daily bread. Whatever it is, even if it's not mine, I would desire that. This is the way we often think of God. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being. Is like gold or silver or stone. Isn't that the way we sometimes think about God? We we think of him as a loving creating God. But we at times think of him as something we created. And we can just kind of twist all the circumstances just right. We're going to get out of him whatever we want. That is idolatry. The times Of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. C.J. Mahaney says this about idolatry. Idolatry is the most frequently discussed and most seriously condemned sin in Scripture. The first three commandments of the Ten Commandments discuss this. You could probably go through all of ten and make note of how they refer to idolatry. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. Our desires are often to just build up different idols, to satisfy our own kingdoms. Thy kingdom come, we oftentimes oftentimes turn into my kingdom come. I want to set up my own kingdom where all around me worship me and laud me as who I desire to be. We live in a false reality oftentimes. This is why social media is so strong in the culture of today. Because we want to build up this false reality around me that makes me feel as if I'm something I'm really not. That's something I would desire to be. That people can laud me and praise me for whatever I want them to laud and praise rather than the, the true reality of who I am. A definition by Augustine would be idolatry being earthbound thoughts. Another definition would be in, when anything or anybody gets what God alone deserves. An idol is anything that is a substitute for God and what he alone can do for you. This is across the board in Scripture. And we'll go to some of these passages here in just a minute. What causes idolatry? Let's go to Isaiah 44. We'll answer a few questions on what causes idolatry. And then we're going to go to what are the signs of an idol that are present in my life using Isaiah 44 as well as um, this Acts 17 passage. and there's so much that we can <coughs> there's so many passages that we could read today and i encourage you to make this a, a topical study in your in your daily devotions just start looking up idolatry it's all over scripture we're going to Isaiah 44 we're going to go to verse 20 but 9 through verse 20 is all about idolatry but we're going to start we're going to just look at verse 20 for the sake of time Isaiah 44 verse 20 he feeds on ashes this is the the key here. This is that would be a, a cause of idolatry. A deluded heart. That would be the cause. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say. Is there not a lie in my right hand? Calvin I think was very right. In that he said the human heart is an idol factory. So if you remove yourself from scripture. If you remove yourself from the fellowship of the saints. If you. Allow the the world to be more present than the things of God. You're deluding your heart, and the natural outflow of that is going to be idolatry. And this is the this is the cause of idolatry. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, "Is there not a, a lie in my right hand?" O heart that is watered down to the things of God. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that according to Jeremiah. And we've got to guard our heart. Let's go to Proverbs 4.23. A well-known passage. Passage few, I think, know that is actually quoted earlier in the Old Testament. And we're going to go to that passage here in just a second. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance. Some translations would say discipline. Keep your heart with all discipline. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Now that is a quote from Deuteronomy four nine. Go over there with me. Deuteronomy four, verse nine. This is Moses commanding obedience to the children of Israel. Verse nine. And if you I encourage you to write in your Bible, and I would encourage you to write next to this. Deuteronomy 4.9, Proverbs 4.23. Because Proverbs 4.23 is really talking about what Deuteronomy 4 is talking about, which we'll get to here as we flow through. Only take care, Deuteronomy 4.9, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how in the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And then he talks about what happens at Mount Horeb and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, look what flows right out of Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 14. The, The heading on my Bible says, idolatry forbidden, starting in verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And the New Testament talks about this. First John 5.21. John tells us, little children, be careful. Watch yourself. Be careful of idolatry. It is something that's going to be a natural outflow unless we keep our soul, our heart vigilantly or disciplined, or diligently. It comes, idolatry comes from a deluded heart. Now, go back to Acts 17. And I want to quickly go through a few signs of an idolatrous heart. These are in no particular order, and they would come out of Isaiah 44 as well. We're not going to go to Isaiah 44, but I encourage you to do so. They would come out of both Isaiah 44 and this Acts 17 passage. Uh, no, in no particular order, here here would be one, and let's start at verse 21. In a, an idolatrous heart, yeah, this is not across the board, but it could be a person who has an idolatrous heart is interested in, and a lot of news and a lot of knowledge that they might proclaim. This I, news can be an idol, wanting because it is a self-promotion, it is a promotion of yourself, wanting to know more than everybody else and be able to be in the conversation, having the most knowledge. A newsmonger could be a sign of an idolatrous heart. You see that in verse twenty-one, telling or hearing something new. How about? This verse 18. An idolatrous heart could be a person who is a mo- who mocks other people. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, here's, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities." How often do we mock those who, in Christianity, are seeking to be all for the glory of God, seeking to be holy, and they're in, in their pursuit of holiness. Are willing to abstain from things, and so we look at them and say, "I think he's going a little too far." You know, I think he's a little too much into that Jesus thing, and we mock them. A mocking, a mocking heart can be a sign of an idolater's heart. How about this? This verse twenty-one again. They spent their time in nothing. It, it, an idolatrous heart can be a, a heart. An idol can be something that consumes your time. What do you find yourself doing a lot of? What when, when you when you have an idle thought and you're just idol idle I D L E an idle thought, sitting alone, thinking about something. What is the thought? What, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? Be honest with yourself. What are those thoughts? Those probably are that which consumes your time, or what you want to consume your time with. What are your thoughts and intentions? What is is that that consumes your time? That would that could be the sign of an idolatrous heart, or showing what could be the idol. This Epicurean verse eighteen and Stoic philosophers, people that were desiring of 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 appeasing the senses, uh, appeasing their senses now, pleasures of sin for a season. An idolatrous heart could be one that desires to have the peace of his senses now, wanting to satisfy my desires right now. So I'm going to go to this. I'm going to read that. When you have an idle moment, or when you're when you are a little discouraged, not quite sure what to do with your time, what do you go do to satisfy yourself? And be honest. Whatever that is, it may not be an idol, but in for the love of Christ. In desire to honor Him, be honest enough with yourself to determine whether or not that is something that is potentially an idol. An idol, this would be out of Isaiah forty-four, makes you blind to themselves. So it's very difficult to, to tell to tell whether or not you have an idolatrous heart, which we'll talk about here in a minute, because it normally makes you blind. Now, what is the solution to ridding idolatry? So I went over a couple characteristics of an idolatrous heart. It could be a newsmonger. It could be a desire to satisfy the the lust of their flesh now. It could be a mocking heart, a heart that is consumed uh, with time on other things, a heart that's blind, a deluded heart. What is the solution to ridding idolatry? Well, it has to start, obviously, with all sin, in verse 30 of Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. We would need to repent, beginning with repentance to rid idolatry. Isaiah 44, uh, you could also go to Deuteronomy 4, talks about then the next thing you should do is to remember what God has said and done. You're to turn from this fabrication, imagination of your own mind that can do nothing for you and turn and claim the richer satisfaction in Christ alone to showing and reminding yourself of what God has said and done in your life. Then you would return to God for He has redeemed you. You can look at that in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Verse 7 of that passage. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus' his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we con- confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So we're to confess that sin in repentance and then return to Christ and have fellowship with him. And fight and flee for Glory. Another passage that's closely uh, tied to this Act 17 passage would be 1 Corinthians 10, and we memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is in the context of idolatry. If you study all of the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, we're to, we're to fight and flee temptation in, the, in verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. But look at the following section, starting in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10, do all to the glory of God. So, in ridding ourselves of idolatry, the word to repent, remember what God has said and done, return to God, and fellowship with Him, and fight and flee for glory. So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A solution to ridding idolatry. Now, I'm going to make one more point in closing here about idolatry. And that is that if you as we all do at times have idolatrous hearts, you've got to be in Scripture. You're not going to see this other than if you're in Scripture and you're in the fellowship of the body and you have strong accountability with those around you who can call out that idolatry in your life. In your life, Cody, I've noticed that you've been spending a lot of time in. I noticed that you've been doing a lot of. I noticed that you've been and helped me determine my own heart and what may be idolatrous that is there. So you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. We've talked about the importance of the local body. You have to submit yourself to men and to women, men to women, women to women, that will allow you, submit yourself to the preaching and teaching of the Word, that will allow you to see your heart in in that reflection, in that mirror. You're not going to be able to look inside and say, hey, because my heart's desperately wicked i want to naturally look at the things that are good within me and i'm not going to desire to look at that which is bad in with me bad within me uh, the other day we chandler and i burned two huge burn piles at our at our house next door and it was probably the hottest fire i've ever been around it was really well packed and there was a light breeze and i didn't light the fire in a light breeze i actually lit it when it was slightly raining and there was no breeze. And as soon as I lit it, what happens? It stopped raining and a light breeze comes up. And it was one of those fires that black, black smoke and the flames would roll up the smoke. Really getting, really getting hot. And as I sat there I began to think about it, Chandler and I had this conversation of that is what I deserve. And that is my heart if but for the, if but for the grace of God. Is, is that, is, go sit in that fire. That is my idolatrous heart. Is deserving hellfire for eternity. And but for the grace of God. Well, I don't like to look at that unless God brings about others in my life who can show me that. Or he brings out practical analogies such as a fire in my life where I can look at things and go, wow, that's my heart. That's what I deserve. But it's rare that we can see that. God has to enlighten us and has to come through scripture. So in this study of idolatry, in this understanding of the cultural significance of what was going on in Acts 17, and we could go for many more messages on what is actually happening in Acts 17 and how it relates to our culture. Because as I said before, we're very clas- closely tied to this culture. We very much have built up uh, a strong foundation of idolatry here in America. In this understanding of idolatry, we've got to realize that our heart is naturally going to do this. And we've got to repent repent. And we've got to see Christ alone as that which has, is, is all worthy of worship. Remember at the beginning I said the difference being with idolatry and worship of God is God has created us for worship. In idolatry, we take other things and create them for us to worship, whereas God has created us to worship him. This is entirely about Romans 1. It's entirely about worship, to worship God and not to worship ourselves not worship that which we have created. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the morning and the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, we felt like in many ways we've just brushed the surface of that which is here. And I pray, Father, that you would give us um, a deeper understanding of this idolatrous heart. And Lord, I thank you for helping me to see in even a small way the idols in my own heart showing me that through Scripture, desiring to proclaim and build my own kingdom, desiring to want that which is um, my daily bread, what I want is for my daily bread, what I want for you to provide, not what you want me to provide. But there's much within me that is idolatrous. And give us grace to repent, to turn, to examine how we're spending our time, the prevailing thoughts in our own lives that we might father worship you in spirit and truth wholeheartedly not divided in our worship father we thank you that you've created us you've created us for a grand and glorious purpose and we find our greatest satisfaction in accomplishing that purpose and may we do that well this morning in worship in corporate worship And may this corporate worship be just an extension of our private worship during this last week. May we now, as we would fellowship, Lord, uh, be an encouragement to one another, be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus alone. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.